Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Kristen Lowry, and I am joined by my husband, Dan, or when he's in trouble, Daniel. What? Uh, this, season, this season, we are focusing on reimagining prayer, what prayer looks like in terms of Jesus's invitation to abide in him and his directive to live out our spiritual authority in bringing about the Great Commission. Today, we have the privilege of Tom Ashbrook joining us. Tom has served as a member of the core community of the Order of Imago Christi since 2004, when he co-founded the ministry with Bill O'Byrne and Andy Kovacs. In 2000, he joined Novo to establish their spiritual formation ministry. As a missionary with Imago Christi, Tom develops spiritual formation resources and coaches Christian leaders and churches to live and lead with a spiritual authority grounded in loving intimacy with Jesus. He provides spiritual direction for pastors and missionaries and teaches in spiritual formation, discovery seminars, and other spiritual formation settings. Tom also extends his ministry through his writings on spiritual formation. He is author of the book, Mansions of the Heart, Seven Stages of Spiritual Growth, and co-author of Mansions of the Heart Study Guide. In 2014, Tom published a novel, Presence, What If Jesus Were Really Here?, and a companion study guide, Discovering Christ's Presence. His article, The Right Disciplines at the Right Time, Understanding the Journey of Teresa of Avila, was published in Conversations Journal in 2014. And most recently in 2018, he published a collaborative book entitled Contagious Fire, Inflaming Hearts for God and Mission. Tom earned a BS degree in aeronautical engineering from Arizona State University, an MS in Management Systems from the University of Southern California, and an MDiv from Luther Theological Seminary. He received his Doctor of Ministry in Spiritual Formation and Leadership from George Fox Evangelical Seminary. Tom, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. That's that's when I listen to that. It's amazing. I got that all done, and I'm only 29 years old. I know, right? Yeah, and you you, yeah. you look 25 for sure. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing I didn't I didn't um, talk about in your bio, which I'd love to just hear, is, is just um, I know you're married and kids and and kind of all that stuff. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, about that and your family life? Yeah, I'm married to Charlotte. Uh, we've been married 54 years now. That makes me a little older than 29, wow, I guess. Congrats. And so <laughs> we live in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Uh, we have uh, three grown children, Mark, Stephen, and Emily, and five grandchildren, all uh, college ageish. And mm. so, yeah, they don't live anywhere near us. We're out here in the mountains, it's snowing right now, and we love it. Yeah. Mm, oh, well, thank you. Um, one of the things we've we've tried to do in every episode this season is to ask for a funny prayer story. I think at times when you know you think of prayer, you don't think of funny. But as with all things, Jesus and church and the sinners that are <laughs> that make up the church, there's mm-hmm. always something comical that can happen. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, could you share a little funny antidote for us? Sure, it's a story. 
I'll talk later about monastery, but I was uh, on retreat at a monastery and decided to explore a little hermitage, a little shack on the monastery property up on up in the mountain a ways. And it was attached to a, uh, an old rickety barn that probably hadn't been used in years. And this, this uh, little tiny room uh, attached to it had a, a bed with a, just a mattress on it a little cook stove in it and a chair. And that was all that was in there. And I decided that, well, I think I'll just spend the night up here and spend the, spend the time in prayer. I could get alone in the monastery, had my own room, of course, but I thought, well, this would be a great idea. And so as I, I just, I walked up there uh, barefooted, actually, it was a warm, sunny day. And I wore this black cassock thing and it's uh, I don't think I had much on under it, but, you know, it goes all the way to your feet <laughs> and it's what monks wear. And so I decided, well, I'll, it's getting evening and I'm going to put a fire in this little stove with a pipe coming out of it going through the roof. And I gathered some kindling paper and matches and I started lighting this little fire. And I, I'm a good fire starter. I've done a lot of camping and so this should be no problem. And on the 15th try, I still could not get this little fire going. And it would just, the match would blow out when I would put it in. The match would blow out. Finally, get the paper out, and that would go lit, and that would go out. I don't think, if I ever got a twig to smolder it. And finally, I thought, you know, it's going to get cold tonight. And without a little heat in here, I'm going to be freezing to death. And But it was so on and off. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. Finally, the fire, again, wouldn't light, wouldn't light. And I head back down to the monastery and just really wondering, I couldn't start a fire. And so the next, I'm in my room later and I'm, I'm, I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord, I, that's just odd. And I had this picture as clear as day, I could paint it for you right now, of this black cast iron stove. On the one end was my face in it trying to light matches and put the stuff in there to get this little kindling going. And on the other end was the face of an angel madly blowing out the matches in the fire. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it was so oh my goodness. Why would that happen? Well, the next morning I woke up, there was a foot and a half of snow on the ground. If I'd had stayed in that little cabinish thing, I'd had to hoof it through the snow and my bare feet all the way down to the monastery the next morning. And so the Lord in his mercy uh, sent an angel to blow out the fire. Something <laughs> stupid. That's I, that's I, can just, I can just imagine the angel. So how many times are we going to do this? Stuff? I know, really. How long is it going to take him to get it? Yeah. <laughs> Only 15. All right. You're doing, you're doing okay. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's oh, a man. story. That describes pretty much 50% of my prayer life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, again, we are so excited to have you join us. I first had the privilege of, of getting to know you. I was looking up your ministry, Imago Christi, and interested in being a part. And so we had a phone conversation. You were gracious enough to, to chat with me. We talked for about an hour, and I was like, man, I, I don't know what this guy's doing, but I want to I be a part. I want to go. And uh, so I went to a discovery event in Phoenix, and 
you know, I was sharing with Kristen earlier that it really was like a revolutionary time in my life, like a paradigm shift in the way that I engage God or uh, in prayer, the way that I look at prayer, just in terms of abiding the the goal and purposes of prayer. Um, and so to be able to have you on this podcast and share with all of our listeners, you know, your wisdom and experience, I'm just, I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a little kid. I'm giddy. <laughs> like, okay, go. <laughs> but uh, so what I, what I'd love to do is just start off. If you could tell us a little bit about your journey to Christ, kind of how that happened and, and where the Lord met you. Yeah, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian family at all. My parents didn't go to church. Uh, what I'd heard about Christianity was being a Christian was being a relatively nice person, but you didn't have to go to church to do that. And so it was really in my 20s at Arizona State when I was studying engineering that I guess I believe the American uh, dream or motto that if you worked hard and did the best you could, everything would work out okay, right? And so in my junior year, everything was not working out okay. I discovered I didn't want to be an engineer. I'd broken up with my girlfriend I thought I was going to marry. I just, yeah, I was concerned about getting drafted and sent to Vietnam. And my parents were going through divorce. My dad had alcoholism and Parkinson's disease and, you know, just nothing was going right. And I eventually sought out a college professor uh, that I'd had two years older. He was head of linguistics at ASU, and I needed to talk to somebody and couldn't call home, couldn't, you know, nothing. And went over to his house and, you know, he asked me if I'd tried praying about it. And I informed him that I didn't believe in God and I didn't pray. And, you know, so hmm. he just started sharing the gospel with me, I think, in a way I'd never heard before. And you know, I, I really wasn't interested in religion at all, and not that I was hostile toward it. I just, there are lots of religions around. And so finally, to put him off, I told him, uh, I said, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite about this, asking God for help. He had told me that God wanted to help me, but he'd only do that on his own terms. And those terms was he'd either be the boss or nothing. He wouldn't be a Band-Aid pusher to help me with my owies and then be summarily dismissed. and. So he was encouraging me to ask God for help. And I said, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I, I can't tell you I believe there's even a God. I can't tell you that I believe Jesus is the son of God. I can't tell you that I believe anything in the Bible is true. I wouldn't promise to quit drinking, swearing, or smoking, and I wouldn't promise to go to church. And he just looked at me and said, oh, that's okay. you got to start someplace. <laughs> you know, and I ended up on my knees with him in the front in his living room, right? <laughs> okay, God, if you're there. Mm -hmm. uh, I need help, but I can't make any promises. And mm -hmm. we got up and he said, God bless you, Tom, and walked me out the front door. Mm. He, he didn't, he, I told him later he broke every rule of evangelism. He didn't give me a tract. He didn't <laughs> give me a Bible. He didn't invite me to church. He didn't follow up. He didn't do anything. <laughs> but I can say within 24 hours, I knew that that prayer had been the most important thing that had ever happened to me. God became real, and none of my problems got solved, uh, not for a long time. But yeah, so that that started me on a, a a journey of a very experiential relationship with the Lord. I mean, I was I just started from scratch. I'd never read the Bible before. I nothing, and so yeah, graduated in engineering. Met my wife Charlotte. We were married and worked in Long Beach at what was then McDonnell Douglas. Eventually, yeah, I got active and following the Lord. I just found out that 
when you enter into him with prayer, uh, you know, that things happen. And so yeah, we yeah. Worked, worked in youth ministry for a while and eventually ended up becoming a Lutheran pastor uh, after all that schooling and found out I didn't fit very well as a Lutheran. I was maybe too evangelical or too too hot on the Holy Spirit or, um, you know, but I did survive it and mm. pastored a number of churches until I joined Novo and been in Novo since, well, 2000. Okay. So you find yourself, you're a believer, you're married now, you've, you know, you've got some kids, you've got something of a career going on, you're pastoring, you're, you're in a Lutheran church. Can you share with us a little bit about your journey from pastoring into your understanding of prayer today? Like what, what were, what was the major transition point there in your life? Well, Dan, uh, as this engineer and uh, I'm the type type A kind of guy, I want to get things done now. So my prayer life was like I'd been taught. It's talking to God. I had wonderful one-way conversations with God for the most part. I told him what was wrong with the universe, how to fix it, when to fix it, and how to do it so everybody would know it was him. And, you know, uh, that was my prayer life. And an active prayer life, our church was a praying church. We had a healing ministry, for example, and mm. asked God for all kinds of things, which he wonderfully gave. And But the, the real change for me in terms of understanding the nature of prayer came in visiting this monastery I was telling you about earlier. And the monks there farmed this huge farm that support themselves, but their vocation was prayer. They were Trappists, also called Cistercians. And their whole life was organized around the ability to focus on prayer. And uh, people, of course, sent them tons of stuff to pray for, but mostly they stayed away. You, when you visited the monastery, you didn't get to see the monks, uh, except on special type. I this one monk that I sat next to in choir where we chanted the Psalms. They let me do that. And so I asked him one day about prayer. I said, well, you know, you guys spend all this time in prayer. They don't even talk to each other when they work because so they can be in prayer. And what do you say to God all that time? And Brother Boniface looked at me kind of quizzically and responded, well, we, we don't really say much to God. We mostly listen. And another time I asked him, well, okay, so you spend all this time listening to God. How do you hear God? Uh, is it through Bible passages that pop out or you know, a word from the Lord in your mind or a vision or what happens. And he says, well, all that kind of stuff can happen, but mostly we just learn to intuit his heart. And so that that hit me like a ton of bricks. Wow. Uh, seminary, everything else, I'd never heard anybody talk that way. I'd never heard anybody not only use those words, but even talk about listening to God's heart been part of the charismatic movement, so words of prophecy and words of knowledge and, you know, wisdom, that kind of thing where I was familiar with, but intuiting the heart of God really made me realize that I had a lot of growing to do as a Christian. I mean, I wouldn't have said I was a perfect Christian or anything, you know, like that, but I had it all together, understood the infinite God. But if you'd asked me if I was a mature believer, I would have said, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, we're doing this thing. and But this turned me upside down, and I began asking the question, what does spiritual growth look like for a maturing believer? 
we were all into discipleship. And I mean, seriously, we had a lot of kids in our church and we were serious about our, our kids knew how to minister the gifts of the Holy Spirit by the time they were in the ninth grade. And, the, you know, what does spiritual growth discipleship look like for uh, people like me? And uh, I began to ask around other pastors, uh, Campus Crusade missionary friend of mine at the University of Utah. You know, I just get these kind of blank stares. And uh, this Campus Crusade missionary kind of told me the standard discipling things that he used with students. And I asked him, I said, well, does that still work for you? Uh, do you feel that those things have you growing? And he said, well, you know, they're good things for me to do, but no, I, I don't feel like I'm growing. And so I, I began to read. I mean, I began to start reading the Desert Fathers, and I began to read the Church Fathers and different people who were talking about spiritual growth. I got that was just about the time Renovari was beginning, and so I read Richard Foster and Dallas Willard and just this whole movement that was really beginning worldwide about deepening intimacy with with God and Jesus and really began, again, the engineer in me wanting to know, well, how does this work? And that got me on to Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and reading about them. And mm. and for both of them, they really, they would say the the heart of our growing deepening our relationship with God is prayer, and that most of it is listening, not talking, the same thing Brother Bonhamus was telling me, and mm. and just showing up and being with him, and not trying to control the time like I'd always done, but I'd do a devotion, and I'd read passage out of one of the Gospels, and I'd say, okay, God, you've got 47 seconds to speak to me in the context of Matthew 5, 7. And if you don't, I'm going on to better things. And you know, I can just imagine his raised eyebrows. You know, uh, the presumption is unimaginable, but that's all I'd ever been taught. Right. Sure. And uh, so I began to really yearn to, to spend quality time, listening to God. And, but I have to tell you, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like I said, I'm this type A activist kind of guy. I got a lot of energy. I'm on the move. I love being with people, but the Lord set me up. A Baptist pastor friend of mine there in uh, Utah, where I was pastoring, calls me up and says, I got to tell you something. My, my mother just went to a 30 day Ignatian retreat and it changed her life. And he said, she's, she's amazing. I mean, she's, she was sort of a, a nominal Episcopalian before that, and now she's on fire for God. And he says, I've been looking at the Ignatian exercises for prayer exercises. And he said, you know, I don't know how Ignatius figured that out, but they're just built around the four spiritual laws. It's amazing. It's all just scripture. It's, you know, the guy could have been an evangelical and not a Catholic. So he says, I've written a Protestant version of these prayer exercises. And he says, I want you to field test them with me on your congregation, and I will on mine. We'll start with our elders and staff. And so I, I read what he'd written, and it was great. I mean, it's just going, spending time with mostly a gospel verse, 
imagining yourself in that story and kind of seeing what God points out to you. And so I committed foolishly to an hour a day uh, for what would take uh, at least six months, six to nine months, uh, other than Sunday or vacation or, you know, it wasn't a legalistic thing. And I got all the elders in my church on board to do the same thing and our staff. So I was trapped. I mean, I couldn't welch. I, I would, you know, they say silence and solitude, get quiet with God. And I would go away to get quiet. Well, I could make my mouth shut up, but I couldn't turn off my brain. I thought there's got to be a switch here someplace, right? Thoughts, yeah. ideas, everything's going wild in there. And and so yeah. so I would just give up. I just figure I'm a failure at this. I'm not, I told people I'm not a contemplative, you know, I, I can't do this stuff. And but the Ignatian exercises just, I couldn't welch. And so I, you go through it, you pick, pick out a verse. I mean, so it's all kind of listed out and it's, uh, and then you just go through a verse, imagine yourself into it, notice what sticks out to you in the story, and then just spend about 20 minutes being present to God in it. Okay, Lord, is there anything you want to say to me about this? Or why did this why did I kind of notice this part of the story? And well, it in about six months or so, I became addicted to prayer. Hmm. And it felt like an addiction. I mean, it was something I couldn't not do. And when I wouldn't do it for a while because of one thing or another, I'd get twitchy. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, Charlotte would ask me, what's wrong with you? And, uh <laughs> So that, the Ignatian exercises, uh, the book, by the way, is uh, called Sacred Listening. And we developed this together and eventually Baker Books published it. So it's it's a Protestant version of the Ignatian exercises mm -hmm. that were developed by Ignatius of Loyola in the in Spain in the 15, 1600s. And to teach these intellectual guys how to listen to God in the scriptures and not just study the Hebrew and Greek. And so that that was one major thing that began to get this listening mode in me. And another was retreats at this monastery. And I'd go for a, a week or four days every month while I was pastoring there. And I just become a monk. I mean, it just I didn't eat with the guests. I I took my own food and just went to the seven worship services and walked and sat and prayed and yeah just mm. learned to get alone with god and it's like he he had to kind of recreate a new mechanism in me brother boniface one day was talking about oh i was always he and i would go on walks every day or so you know so i was complaining about not hearing from god enough and why didn't god you know blah 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 and I think he was frustrated at me and we stopped dead on the road and he pointed down to the ground and said, see that little blue flower? He said, there's more of God in that little blue flower than you could spend a lifetime learning. And then he went off on this thing about God is everywhere. He's in everything. He's speaking to you all the time. He's communicating to you. He's on and on and on. My head is spinning. And so after dinner that night, I went for a walk in the orchard on the monastery grounds there all alone and just at sunset and was talking to God again. I said, Lord, if you're you're communicating to me all the time, why is it 
thought I never hear you or I hardly ever. And his word came to me, not out loud, but as clear as anything in my mind, Tom, I'm shouting at you all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just my immediate response is, and why don't I hear you? And when I do, it's so seldom and so cryptically. And, and then the passage from Ezekiel just jumped into my mind. I will remove from you the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And I realized mm-hmm. then that God had to make a heart change in me, that, that the mechanisms that he created in me to intuit his heart had grown, you know, they were unused, right? I mean, it was, and so that, I realized that, and that's not something that's just going to happen overnight. It's, again, got my, okay, God, I don't have to learn how to do this or make this happen. God has got to transform me in a way mm. uh, that it enable me to do that. And I'm still a sinner and I'm broken and I got all my issues. And so I'm never going to be perfect at, at it. But God wants to have a relationship with me of intimacy and communion and communication that, that I hadn't even known was possible uh, mm. before. It seems so amazing as a pastor of a local church that you were able to do that because we know so many pastors that burn out. Um, Do you feel like getting away for those four days a month and having that opportunity to connect and learn these new pathways, did that, you feel like, um, I don't know, prolong, not in a negative sense, but were you able to carry on better in your ministry or a healthier maybe because of that time? Yeah. I, uh, people would comment. I mean, so people would ask Charlotte, how can you, you know, we got young kids at that point, maybe you guys age kids and how do you let him go? You know, I mean, did you see <laughs> the whole fort in your hands and yeah, she'd say, well, he, he comes home a better husband. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon people at the church saying, well, can we go to the monastery with you? <laughs> and they only had places for men in this particular monastery. So that, but they had a place where some women could do a retreat too. But so I started taking people along and just, you know, hang out. And mm-hmm. you could feel an atmosphere of prayer there. I mm-hmm. mean, there was, you know, it was Catholic and there were things we didn't agree with about with the Catholics theologically, but. There was a genuineness of devotion to Jesus in that place. And often they'd want to meet Brother Boniface. And so at one point, you know, he'd sit with them and talk. And as it changed me, people could see it. And I began talking about Jesus more and preaching, you know, because I would say there are two major motives or things that came out of my story. One was to see people come to know the Lord because I'd spent 20 some odd years of my life on the dark side. I mean, I wasn't into terrible things, but I, I didn't know the Lord. And so I have had and still do a passion for that. The other is to see the church be a place where people experience the Lord. You know, I've been to church with my girlfriend uh, was Catholic. I've been to church with her. I had a friend who was Presbyterian. I'd been to church with him once or twice. And in retrospect, what I saw was religion. 
Now, I'm not saying the Lord wasn't there and that they weren't genuine believers in those churches, but I didn't see him. I mean, it looked like religion to me. And and so my passion as a pastor is that I want people to meet Jesus here. Yeah. And as my longing to know the Lord in this deeper way, grounded in prayer, increased my desire for people to know him and see him and experience him in the life of the church was increased. And so my ministry began to deepen, I think, and and become more focused around the person of the Lord. And mm-hmm. after I left that church, uh, went to Arizona and then Oregon, uh, pastored there. And just part of my contract is that I got four weeks a year mm-hmm. to go to the monastery. Mm-hmm. And not all at yeah. once. And it was written into my contract. And I said, it's not going to be my vacation or study leave time, and you're going to pay for it. And of course, <laughs> they wanted me to become their pastor when I first came, so they'd agree to anything. And later, some people say, we really paying this guy to pray? But, uh, yeah, so. Well, if only more churches maybe thought that way, uh, did that. Yeah. yeah. So, um on this growth journey, right? You're you're learning about intuiting the heart of God. You're learning about Jesus changing that heart of stone into flesh. You're you're growing in a greater understanding of what what it's all about, like what what God is doing. And I think you masterfully put it down in your book, Mansions. Well, what is God doing in this in this prayer journey? Where is He taking us? And kind of what are the steps along the way? And I really felt like, you know, when, when I was with you in the discovery event, just the idea that God's bringing me to the heart of God or in an ever-growing understanding and, and intimacy with the love of God, that was like revolutionary, like just mind-blowing. So would you share with us just a little bit about your understanding from from your book, Mansions, and, and kind of what God is doing you know, intuiting the heart of God. Yeah. Well, Teresa, again, I read a number of people that talked about spiritual growth, but Teresa of Avila was, uh, I would call her a church planter. That's sort of a little bit tongue in cheek, but she started a reform movement of a group of Carmelite nuns in Spain. And this group, and then John of the Cross started the men's movement in this same thing. And she was his spiritual director for a while, and he was her spiritual director for a while. And this spread like wildfire across uh, across Spain and ultimately into Europe. And the power, this is during the time of the Inquisition. I mean, it's a time of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. I mean, it hugely tumultuous time. But so the, the her supervisors said, we we've never seen anything like this in terms of what we might call revival, right? But within a monastic kind of community and they get new houses and new towns and this was spreading all around and a genuine biblical kind of faith. And so they asked her to write about, how do you do that? You know, what's going on here? And so she actually risked her life to, to write about this and what she saw happening in these men and women so she asked God for, she said, give me an analogy that anybody could understand that's both biblical, but is part of the lives of people. And so Teresa saw in her mind's eye, our heart, our human heart, 
and it was like a crystal diamond castle. So like the amazing castles we'd see in Europe, but it was all made of glass or diamond and the light of Christ was shining from the inside, the very center of that castle, his love shining out through its walls. And we're attracted to that innermost part, you know, the center tower of the castle and to meet the king there who's, who's the Lord. And so she said the way these castles were built, which in her time, anybody would understand whether they'd ever actually been in one or not, but they had kind of groups of dwelling places that were concentric and different people lived in different stages from outside the castle, of course, everybody, and then inside, you know, the guards and inside that, the cooks and inside that, the family and so on and so forth. And she said, she said, I saw 70 of these kind of groups of dwellings that she called mansions within this castle. And she said, first three of these, you enter this castle, as you go over the drawbridge, that's when you become a Christian. However that happens, that's when you go in. And she says, she said, then the, the first part of this castle, the first three of these seven area living areas are like, the process is like growing up and becoming an adult. And she said, then the last part of them, the last four are like falling in love and getting married. And so everybody could just understand that. So she, she then wrote in this book, she'd talk about this first season of mansions and of becoming a Christian. And she'd talk about, well, how does that happen? And one of the things she always talked about was how our prayer life changes. And so the first three of these mansions really is what we think as evangelicals and in most churches would call discipleship. You know, it's it's learning. It's to come to faith in Christ. It's it's learning about prayer, asking God. You know, we use the ACTS acronym in terms of an outline of what we might say to him. It's learning the Bible and our basic Christian theology and Maybe discovering, we talk about discovering our spiritual gifts and our, our call to how to serve Jesus and getting to work. And that, she says, people spend much of their lives, their Christian walk, in those mansions. And again, the prayer starts out by asking God for what we need. He invites us to do that. And and then it may involve more around intercession for others and our ministry context, what we're doing to serve him. And Lord, help me with this and guide me this way. And and she would say some prayer around scripture may begin in this third mansion. And and God has continued. He loves us. He's wooing us along. The biblical passage, which kind of shows this, this progression, Jesus says to the disciples, in the past, uh, I've called you servants and you've called me master. And he said, there's truth to that. But he says, now I call you friends because I've shared with you everything I'm doing. And then we see after the resurrection, Jesus talking to Peter in that post-resurrection experience by the lake. And he's saying, Peter, do you love me? You know, three times. And But in English, we don't get the play of the words. Uh, in the Greek, different words are used. So it might go this way. Peter, do you love me, agape? And Peter would respond, Lord, you know I'm your friend, Phileo. 
And then so Jesus asked, and then he says, well, feed my sheep. And the second time, Peter, do you love me, agape? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend, uh, phileo, a different response word. And then finally, Jesus said, Peter, are you really even my friend? And that's what broke Peter's heart. And But Jesus was inviting Peter from this relationship of friendship, which is a wonderful thing, into this relationship of love. And so Teresa said, well, so we're in the third. And she says, these mansions sort of overlap. We travel around. It's not like a, a strict stage. Now I've moved from this one to this one and now this. But we kind of journey around in here. We explore. And that's another thing I liked about Teresa's thing. It wasn't a ladder to be climbed or, a, you know, it's, it's a journey that God leads us on. And yeah. we can respond or not. We can go as fast as, as we're able, uh, but he's not pushing us. Or uh, So he's, she says, well, this fourth mansion is, is sort of like falling in love. It's, well, I use the analogy, when we're in college, we go to a dance just to meet people and hang out and have a good time. And then we meet Mr. or Miss somebody, and suddenly the reason we're going to dance is for a whole other reason, uh, mm-hmm. right? We want, we're hoping they're there, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll see them, and we can connect. And then pretty soon we're inviting them on a date, and, you know, now who cares about the dance? And it's all about being with this person. And Teresa says, that's what it's like. Jesus begins to reveal himself to us uh, in subtle little ways until kind of why we're here, why we're doing this ministry, maybe as part of the church or, or however it might be, is we're getting glimpses of Jesus and we we kind of show up uh, to catch more glimpses of him. And I began to experience that at this monastery. Uh, I'm just immersed in scripture seven times a day, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to church and listening to the gospels and epistles, Old Testament being read and and pretty soon I realized, wait a minute, the thing that I was just praying about was spoken to in the scripture. I mean, it's, and I began to realize Jesus is trying to get through to me here. You know, that it's, this isn't, so I began paying attention and then, right? So then the monastery wasn't so much about getting away and resting and working on my sermons. It was about paying attention to, to the Lord and seeing how I might meet him. And the more I paid attention, the more I could sense his presence and the more I, he got through to me. And so this kind of falling in love with Jesus. So prayer begins to be more about this relationship than it does about ministry. You know, help me with this, do this, heal so-and-so. I mean, those things still go on, but the deepening time of prayer is, is like going on a date, right? I mean, we just want to be with him. And our heart begins to change its focus. And we move from this servant kind of role through friendship kind of role and begin to enter this beloved role with him. And it's not that we don't love him all along and know that he loves us. But often it's been good enough for us to to know he loves us, to know we're saved, to receive his help and comfort, and to be able to serve him. And that's wonderful. But then he begins to open up this doorway. And then the fifth, sixth, and seventh mansion, uh, Teresa would say, well, the fifth is, is kind of like 
the stage in our relationship where we know this is the one. I want to be married to this lady or to this man. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. It, it, and it, while at some level we've always wanted Jesus to be our Lord, we we now want a, another depth of intimacy that that Teresa and John in Scripture calls union. You know, I pray that they may be one as we are one. So it's it's a depth of intimacy that that deepens profoundly. Just like this, we're no longer just dating, right? We we're in love, and so the getting to know one another. Uh, uh, one author uh, says that it's that season is the experience of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and so prayer becomes listening, being with. Loving. So its motive begins to shift. You know, all these years I showed up for prayer for what I could get out of the Lord. And I wouldn't call that selfish. That's what he invites me to do. Come to me or all who are weary and heavy laden. You don't receive because you don't ask. I mean, it's it's not selfishness, but it's the center of my prayer life was me. And now this begins to shift where he's the center of my prayer life. I just I just want to be with him. I just, I come to it because I'm, I'm falling in love with him. I, I love him. And, and so that makes me want to listen, makes me want to know him better. It makes me want to shut up and <laughs> be still and not just so I'll hear something. I mean, that's wonderful when that happens, but, uh, or I get an insight or what that's wonderful, but just to be with him. So silence becomes then I, I say it sometimes, uh, God's primary language is not English or Russian or German. It's a spiritual language that speaks to the heart. And to us, it sounds like silence, hmm. right? I mean, it, yeah. it, it isn't silent, really. I mean, it's more communication than if he just really went, it would overload all our circuits, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but it feels like nothing, right? But over time, he teaches us how to sit in that. And then... Teresa says the sixth of these seven mansions is like being engaged. She, and, of course, in her time, it was betrothed, right? So we may be betrothed for many years before uh, we're actually married. And so while the fifth mansion was this experience of Christ in you, which is, a, it sounds, I mean, I romanticized, made it wonderful, but it, it's very difficult for many of us as Christians because Brother Boniface would say, say it this way, he said, when God shines his light on himself, we're amazed, we're enwrapped, we're enthralled, we're, you know, but when he shines his light on us, we're mortified, we're embarrassed, we're mm-hmm. humiliated, right? Amen. Yeah. And so as we figuratively draw closer to the Lord and reside more in his light, the more we see of ourselves and we don't like what we see usually, you know, we, mm. I know I'm a sinner. It's easy for me to say that, but I don't like seeing the downside, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't like yeah. seeing double mindedness in me and yeah, I want to preach the gospel, but I also want everybody to like me. Right. And that just becomes blatant out there. And I'm, ah, so a prayer then begins, uh, creating me a clean heart oh God and renew a right spirit within me. And I want to honor you in, in a way that, it isn't just my sinfulness. And so Teresa says that probably most really serious Christians at least explore this fifth mansion. 
but because it's such unfamiliar territory and because uh, they, the, no one's ever taught them how to be still and know that I'm God. Uh, they haven't taught them that, yeah, well, God isn't condemning you because you're seeing, you know, the dark sides of yourself. Uh, he's just showing you how he wants to heal you and bless you. And so she says many people flee back to safer territory. And, and I would say, you know, my coaching many, many I've had pastors who were ready to leave the ministry because they were exploring this fifth mansion. And while they felt on top of their game back in the third and maybe the early parts of the fourth, they felt lost here. This one man said, I feel like a hypocrite. You know, all the platitudes I used to say now I just feel like that, you know, they're truth, but I don't even know where to go. So, so Teresa was particularly sensitive to, she said people need mentors and coaches to just listen and help them. And so in our time, I mean, in Protestant tradition, we're, we live in a time for the first time in since the Reformation where we have spiritual directors, really, you know, that, that are just aren't pastoral counseling, but people to listen with us. So the sixth mansion, Teresa says, that's that's more like in Christ, all the in Christo, in Christ passages. She said it's it's like the bridegroom is taking the bride home to meet his parents and they don't, it's a cross-cultural experience. And in, in, in uh, Nova, we understand that, you know, we don't speak his language. He doesn't, you know, how do we mm-hmm. hang out with the Trinity and just say, oh, it's nice to be here. Good, good salad. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, well, Tom, I hope there's more than salad when I get yes. <laughs> yeah. very, very disappointed. <laughs> so, so Teresa says that's when some of these visions and, uh, mystical kinds of experiences can happen that mm. that can be quite amazing to us. And and then the seventh mansion, she says, is like being married. And those of us who are married know that that isn't a destination uh, of intimacy, right? That uh, we spend our whole lives getting to know one another. You know, Charlotte and I are still figuring it out at fifty-four <laughs> years. And and uh, yeah. So, but she says now we we begin to really know God. And in a way that we haven't before. And but through all of this, there becomes this longing for him. And God has this way of revealing himself and then uh, sometimes hiding himself. And we long for him, you know, and of course, none of this won't be complete until we're in heaven. Right. I mean, or the Lord returns. But and then in this last part, sixth mansion, fifth, late early seventh something are these dark nights and uh we we hear more and more about where god just quits revealing himself i mean it just it feels like he goes on vacation and Hmm. but he's teaching us to to relate to him spiritually to trust him he doesn't have to keep saying i love you to us right but it's a very difficult time and it's it's something I make the analogy, it's like uh, Navy SEAL camp compared to boot camp, right? Boot camp was the easy stuff, even though we thought it was going to kill us if we were, I've never been in the military, so I can only uh, surmise. But now he's really teaching us to walk by the spirit, not by sight, that it's what's unseen that we we learn to intuit. Yeah, so those dark, dark nights, we can get tastes of them and they can last 
uh, some years. God is always with us, and the person going through noise there hasn't gone anywhere. But so prayer uh, again becomes just we talk about listening prayer, and in Imago Christi, we've uh, I taught a course to a Campus Crusade group years ago on uh, prayer, and the title of the workshop was going to be these are German speaking Campus Crusade missionaries, and uh, the, the title was going to be uh, Listening Prayer. And my interpreter wrote me and said, you, you can't call it listening prayer because in German, prayer is the same root as talking. So it would translate it. It would be talking, listening, prayer, and, uh, <laughs> you know, talking, listening, and or listening, talking. So in Imago Christi, we've settled on this term abiding, mm. and we really feel one of the best analogies that uh, Jesus has given us in our relationship to him is the vine and the branches. And so what is the communication or the communion that happens between the vine and the branches? It isn't primarily information, is it? I mean, it's life. Right. It's life. And Mm -hmm. so this abiding prayer, uh, we found is, use that term as a better descriptor so even in the dark nights we can know we're abiding in him mm. and he in us even though the the listening element even the intuiting element is has dried up apparently but uh, so this abiding uh, in, in Jesus the way the branch abides in the vine and being fed by him being loved by him being connected to him become the essence of prayer not so much the exchange of information. So, mm. so that's a really beautiful description of the. I had not actually been familiar with. I mean, I know Teresa of Avila as a maybe historical figure, but not really familiar with any of her work. So the description of those phases is really illuminating, and I'd love to hear you talk about that in terms of the, maybe like the Western church as we know it, because I've grown up my entire life, you know, loving Jesus. And I'm so convicted. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm probably on house two. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a long way to go. Um, And that's, you know, a long time of being in the church and even being a leader and ministering. And so I've, don't feel like I've really gotten a full education when it comes to this kind of listening and abiding Mm -hmm. and really deepening a relationship with the Lord. It manages, or from in my life, it's managed to be, you know, I love him and I serve him. And then I ask him to do things for me and move mountains. And then we continue on our way. So what are your thoughts in terms of our church that we know, like the Western church, kind of normal, if we can say normal, church? And what are ideas or how can we better put this into practice? Well, a couple things. Uh, One is to let people know that there's more. Mm. A lot of people get bored. I mean, with our our third mansion, you know, it's exciting and exhilarating. And but how is it we burn out doing that? I mean, something's amiss there. And Or some people will just say, you know, I've heard a sermon on the 23rd Psalm 50 times, and 
you know, I've, I've sung that hymn and once it was exciting to me and I'm longing for, for more. And so a pastor will hear, I'm just not being fed or yeah. they'll change churches looking for a different style of worship or better worship leader or better preacher. And if we can kind of paint the journey out for people, then they're delighted to be in the second mansion because they know there's this huge, wonderful journey ahead of them. And they're eager to cooperate with the Lord and have him continue that on. We don't have to spend years and years in the third mansion. But see, in the church, that's really all we tell people. You know, just so when I go to my pastor and I say, you know, I'm I'm bored or I'm not getting fed. Well, try this mission trip or read your Bible more or the things that are not bad things to do at all. So when I can know that there is this more out there, I can begin to explore, right? And and so also within the church, having a feel for where somebody is helps us know how to, to disciple them, if you will, or to coach them in what's appropriate. You know, so a second mansion Christian, a relatively new Christian, you don't send them on a silent retreat. You know, they haven't learned to discern the voice of the Lord from the voice of the enemy. I mean, right? They're yeah. gonna, they're gonna maybe they may have a terrible time. And so, yeah. a, a guided retreat is good, and mm-hmm. somebody that's gonna guide them in, in into the Word and into some prayer practices and sharing and the kinds of things we do will be a wonderful experience. And into the third mansion, the person is a little bit more open and free, but you don't ask them to go contemplate because they haven't learned how to do that yet. And so what's supposed to be this wonderful Lectio Divina or silent thing, you know, just doesn't prove to be helpful. So by knowing where somebody is in the journey can help us as a church to to coach and to nurture them. You know, if if our 16-year-old comes to us and says, Mom, Dad, I'm madly in love. I'm, I want to get married to this girl. And, well, we take it with a little grain. You know, okay, calm down here. <laughs> but if our son or daughter comes to us and they're 26 and says the same thing, uh, we respond to them very much differently. We say, well, tell me about this. And so, so knowing where a person generally is in the journey can really help us as a church. And along the line of prayer then, you know, often we can learn to pray in a deeper way together than we can by ourselves. So we say, well, this is what you do. You know, you here's a centering prayer exercise or here's a, a meditation exercise. And so go into your prayer closet and and do it. And well, for some people, that may work real well. And they feel Jesus was great. But for many times, most of us feel like total failures. You know, my mind wouldn't shut up. How do I concentrate? You know, I coach people in prayer and they try to do it at Starbucks. And I said, well, it's a few distractions around, you know, but <laughs> but we can we can do it together. You know, we could come in a room and say, no, let's just be still with the Lord. Let's just let's start with this passage or do an Ignatian exercise and an imaginative put ourselves in the in the in the text the way Jesus did with parables and then let's listen to the Lord together. So I think creating uh, opportunities that can help us learn in our prayer 
our small groups uh, tend to be pretty much the same. And yet we've got people that are new Christians and people that are, you know, exploring the seventh mansion. And so to have some sense of where people are and help them be with people that one of the problems we have as we grow is that there are fewer and fewer people to talk to about our experience. Right. I mean, so I can kind of tell you about an angel looking in the, in the other end of a, fire stove and we can laugh about it but yeah but when those kind of things begin to happen more often who do we talk to about it who do we check out you know is this weird am i you know imagining stuff how do i interpret this so i think teaching us how to providing opportunities is something we can do and we can begin to model church life a bit, uh, not only in these special experiences, but the way we worship on Sunday morning. I mean, in most of our churches, there isn't one nanosecond of dead air, mm. right? From the time we walk That's into the church to from the time do we walk out. So we don't have any time to reflect on what we've heard in the message. Uh, we don't have any time to think about what we just uh, sang in the worship song or the hymn. And so you wonder what it might be like if the worship leader said, let's just spend, let's spend 15 seconds and just think about what it was in that worship song that the Lord touched you with. Mm-hmm. See, that gets, that turns us into this reflective, we don't have to spend a long time, but w- what if, as the pastor read the text, say, now we're going to spend 15 seconds. I mean, I'm talking, Right. What stuck out to you in that text? And let's see how that relates to what the Lord gave me to preach on. Mm. See how we can begin to learn to pay attention. And so the silence in our prayer times, there can be ways, I think, the way we live together in church can model a more reflective kind of life. And that isn't over-threatening and You've done it wrong all these years. You're an infant Christian, you know, but honors people where they are. A, a seeker could say what stuck out to you, be asked to what stuck out to you in this hymn. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And yeah. notice something. So I think there, as we, we've got, uh, I think, teaching. You know, the only thing I'd ever heard about Teresa of Avila was that she was a heretic. You know, she was Catholic. And Lutherans aren't terribly anti-Catholic, but nevertheless, the, there are theological differences, you know, and, you know, she's, so I think we need to expose people to a wider range of the Bernard of Clairvaux's who said, you know, there are four stages of love that really, and it's simple, it's, but we don't talk about that in uh, Western culture where we're all about getting things done, right? It's it's productivity that's important. And but Jesus told Mary, you know, told Martha, no, Jesus, Mary's selected the best part, right? Yeah. And so, so some of these people that are outside our culture, out our, can say things in ways. Whoa, wait a minute, you know, that would never occur to me. That's interesting. And so we we're not paranoid about whether it's Lutheran or Baptist or Protestant or Catholic or Greek Orthodox, we can learn from each other. It doesn't mean we have to change our theologies. So 
in some churches, words like contemplation and meditation, people just say that's new age. You know, we've heard those words yeah. or Eastern mysticism in settings. So, so we, we can say, well, yeah, that can be, but we find it in the Bible too, right? Meditate on God's word. Yeah. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, Tom, as we bring our time to a close, I, I just want to first say there is a part two. So if you're listening, you're loving what Tom's saying. We're going to have a part two in a couple of episodes. But what I would highly encourage people to do, and, and I hope you're okay with this, Tom, is, is to go to imagochristi.org, right? Yes. And, and just check out the resources. And I actually took a mansion's survey or like an assessment it's called a mapping tool. Yeah. yeah, a mapping tool. I did that, and then it gave me like a, you know, kind of here's here's possibly where the mansions are. And then with that came a coaching call with Ted Wiesty, who we actually uh, interviewed in, in a couple of episodes ago. And we talked through kind of where I might find myself. And so that's just a great practical, as uh, my wife Kristen likes to say, so what kind of next step? You know, there's a lot of books that can be read. I would highly encourage you to read Mansions by Tom. Uh, after I read that, I actually went back and read Teresa of Avila. And that was that was amazing. But um, would you say, Tom, just as we go, any other resources that you can think of that you might um, direct people towards? Well, uh, for a seeker, somebody who's, who's kind of beginning this kind of thing, my novel presence, it, it's, a, it's a novel, it's a story about Jesus appearing to three people physically and then telling them how to discern his presence when they can't see him anymore. And it's what happens to them, to their church and to their town. And for some of us, uh, the desire of that is to, is to sense, wow, if I could have a relationship with the Lord like that, you know, and it begins us seeing the more we're maybe not ready for a mansions book or something that so that that's one place i think there are a number of uh well the there's an app called pray as you go that you can put on your phone that's just uh an easy way to kind of get into this listening reflective mode around scripture there's another one uh that's i think it's something contemplation but it's another app you can get on your phone that can be uh, just a helpful tool. There are a number of really good books written these days about spiritual formation, spiritual growth. Again, Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, a uh, number of other authors, James Ryan Smith. Yeah, lots of, we're seeing a worldwide movement. Uh, we're talking to people in, in Novo all over the world who are hearing the call. Jesus says, come to me, minister out of your relationship with me, not, mm. not out of principles or theology, or, but out of your intimacy with me. And we're seeing, you know, in the backwoods of mainland China and other places, just this kind of life coming alive. So we, uh, it's an exciting time to be a Christian, and it, but it's uh, the Lord's putting a hunger in us for more that we need to understand because we can misinterpret it and become really discouraged. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you for your time for this episode. I certainly yeah. appreciated it. I, I, yes, I was, I was so blessed much. all over again. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. 
If you've enjoyed what Tom has to say, what he's been saying, please stay tuned for part two in a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check out what we're doing at the lowrysonmission.org or on Facebook at the Lowry's on Mission. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.